This episode is brought to you by the Mass Foundation. If you found in possession of the unauthorized biography of Ezra Mass by Daniel James, we know who you are. We are coming for you. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben. Joining me today are Philip Friedenberg and Jeff Walton. Phil and Jeff are the guys behind one of the most interesting books of the century so far, America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots, a Diagnostic. Welcome to the show, Jeff and Phil. Tell me about life in Buffalo, New York, Jeff. Well, right now, uh, you know, we're getting out of winter. Uh, Buffalo, New York is, is known for having a uh, harsh winter, but it wasn't too bad this past winter. But yeah, it's, it's come, we're coming out of it. The weather's nice. The barbecues are firing up. You know, and we're, we're, we're getting out there and cleaning up the yards. Uh, Buffalo is a, a beautiful city with a lot of great architecture and a lot of rich history going back to, you know, electricity and all that. We're not too far from Niagara Falls. We're closer to Niagara Falls than we are to New York City. And a lot of times people will say, oh, you're from New York, you know, and equate that to New York City. But we're, we're really about eight hours away from the city maybe seven, depends on how you drive, but uh, the food's good and the life is good. And it's, as far as the rest of the nation is concerned, I think it's, it's economically sound to live here. <laughs> What's your experience like in uh, New York, Phil? Um, I, I like the way that Jeff characterized uh, life in Buffalo. Um, I think one of the things that I've always been drawn to in the sort of romantic um, undercurrent of life in Buffalo is that there's a really rich uh, cultural infrastructure uh, in terms of music and art and literature that runs parallel and sometimes hidden below the overarching dominant sports cultural influence that thrives in Buffalo with uh, football and hockey and there's a nice parallel of these uh, coexisting worlds where I think uh, people are given a lot of opportunity to find welcome in unique places. And it's always been a place where I've found in my experience that um, independent art is nurtured in a way that if you share it, there will be a home for it. And that's something that I've always valued about Buffalo and from a socioeconomic position as well. For a decade, I was leaving Buffalo, uh, traveling around the world, and always found myself uh, happy to return when there was always uh, a lure to other uh, places. Buffalo always uh, carries a strong uh, pulse uh, in my heart. Hmm. You've known each other for 20 years, and now you work together in a print shop. How'd you guys meet? Uh we met at a, at another print shop prior to that, prior to the one we're working at now. We, we Phil actually hired me, I, I want to say, about 20 years ago at, our, at the first sign shop that we worked at. Well, 
Okay. Yeah, uh, I, we were. I was at a real. Interestingly enough, I was working at a place, and uh, I got a job there while I was a, a. My music career was starting to take shape, and uh, Jeff came in, and we used to do this thing where we would put out ads for designers because you could pull designers into a printing facility that would have some. Uh, observable aptitude that you could then when they come in for the interview, then quickly flip and say, okay, well, you're going to work in, you know, vinyl production with me. And uh, that's uh, what we were able to do with Jeff. Which had nothing to do with design. <laughs> yeah. Which had nothing to do with design, but there was an immediate um, sort of absurdist perspective on humor and art that we shared that we've really thrived on for two decades that much of the book is built on this um, sort of absurd humor that, uh, that, that moves throughout the course of the text. And I think a lot of that too, is just the, the chemistry of Jeff and I always striving to find a new perspective, not only on ourselves, but our place in the world and the place in which our, art might function in that world for other people to explore, enjoy, and discover. So you two working together for obviously a long time. This is the first project that's seen the light of day from you two. I imagine there would have been a whole heap of other things you've worked on in the past. I can't imagine this just came out of nothing. Uh, are there some secret projects that have hidden in a drawer somewhere? Well, it's interesting that you say that because <clears throat> our history is actually uh, d divided into when we met and then we sort of went our separate ways primarily because soon after Jeff and I stopped working together, he continued working and uh, developing the business that he later went into and I broke off and left and then I was touring in a band around the world for about 10 years on and off doing other things. So I took a hard turn into, okay, at, you know, 16, I thought, well, I'm going to play guitar and that'll be my pathway into uh, a creative future. And then by 22, I landed in Amsterdam for the first time on tour in music and, and was doing that. And then Jeff and I later reconnected in this almost, um, you know, I'm walking here moment uh, in the street when I was, uh, I was coming out of a bar in a full suit. Um, I had just had some drinks and I was walking down to a local hotel uh, for a college that I was a professor at I had been nominated for professor of the year and I was headed by myself walking down to that ceremony and as I was coming through the red light I looked over and Jeff was there in his Subaru just sort of looking at me at the red light and I just looked at him and hadn't seen him in some years and then just came around the window and that was the moment where we reconnected and then later you know we started working together again but it was just this sort of synchronous moment where that bubble burst and then we were uh, sort of joined again. Is there any, are there any other projects you've worked on? Uh, we, we have not, which is the interesting thing, but as the sort of mythology of this book grows, I've talked about 
how I wanted to write a novel at 20. And I thought, you know, if there's anything I want to do, I want to become a novelist. And I wasn't ready for that at that time. And there was a piece in the book about that that's referenced. And I said to myself, I'm going to do this at 40. I'll write a novel when I turn 40. Then I turned 40. And then like many other readers, I was just voraciously reading, looking for books, trying to make new discoveries, passionate about finding anything that I could. And then one day, soon after turning 40, I found Chris Via Leaf by Leaf did a, a video review of Manifold Destiny of Eddie Vegas, the Rick Harsh book. And I immediately just had something enlightened in me that said, well, this is it. This is what I need to read. What is this book? Who is this author in Europe? What is this about? I have to find my way into it. And then it was when I reached out to him to buy his book that I quickly had this really simple concept emerge that was a grander sort of Jungian synchronicity in the universe where I had that aha, I'm 40 moment. It's time to write the book. I thought I'm going to write a book about writing a book while waiting for a book to arrive in the mail. And that was the singular point of what the book would be about. But really, it was just a platform by which to house all of this grand sort of creative and intellectual architecture of what this fractal structure novel ultimately slowly started to evolve into. But it was that one, um, that one moment where it began. I think one of the things that comes through in your book is the serious amount of education you've probably both had. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about your backgrounds? Sure. Jeff, why don't you start? Uh, well, my education is uh, maybe, you know, I'm, I don't have a master's or anything like that, but I, I did go to uh, a state university in New York school. I went to SUNY Fredonia, it was called, and uh, I studied um, uh, media arts, it was called at the time, now called New Media. And I essentially boil that down to basically doing creative things with computers. And that was what my degree was in. And then I minored in uh, um, drawing. So I took a lot of drawing classes, portrait drawing, abstract, this and that. And uh, so I do have some formal training in that regard, but a lot of my artistic stuff goes way back to when I was a kid and going on long road trips with my parents and my family, my brother, and, and drawing in the car and drawing all the time and comparing my drawings to my brother's drawings. And, and, um, but yeah, just a basic bachelor of fine arts and, uh, and just a lot of practice, many hours with a pen in the hand. <laughs> what about you, Phil? Um, I always had a passion for academics but I was pulled away from academics at a young age simply due to the romantic intoxicating idea I had centered around what music would play in my uh, adult life. And I came to a, a pretty strong crossroads where I had to decide graduating high school, I was either going to 
just explore a, a traditional path through adulthood into the final, you know, uh, discovery of one's mortality where one plays by a certain prescribed set of assumptions and rules that someone uses as the mechanics of passing time through their life. Uh, and then I sort of realized that I was going to upend that and I was going to try to cut a new path into an unknown future and, 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 and make that risk where you say, I'm going to follow the dream kind of idea. And, and I know that it's has these inherent risks and pitfalls, but I went for it and played music and it worked. And it was just one of those moments where I think a lot of my um, entry into writing and my entry into discovery of what fiction and uh, nonfiction for that matter could play as a mechanism for me to continue to learn and make discoveries was rooted in that earlier decision in my life when I decided to say, I'm going to, I'm going to try uh, something with music and, you know, that, that worked for me. Then much later, as I was kind of coming to a close in that path, I remember I was uh, vividly remember I was in Serbia and uh, I had been, you know, touring on and off for 10 years. And I remember having a FaceTime with my daughter and it was her birthday and she turned three and I was, you know, in Serbia and she was in Buffalo. And I thought, I think I've gotten what I can get out of this. And this is a, a, a new, you know, time to, to try something different. And I had always had a fascination with, um, psychology, philosophy, neuroscience, which a lot of those key critical interests are built into the book and the, the deeper architecture of the ideas of the book. Um, so then when I got out of music, then I went back to academics, went through higher education, and then I became a professor of psychology and neuroscience. And I also did some research in a, in a neuroscience lab investigating um, the behavioral and cognitive um, effects of mild traumatic brain injury. And um, interestingly enough, we were using Wistar laboratory rats to do pre and post um, injury analysis of the hippocampus. And we were making 3D volumetric models of the hippocampus pre and post injury. And then we were trying different uh, experimental drugs to determine what type of um, impact we could have on uh, slowing the apoptic uh, cell death at the level of the brain, which could also then preserve uh, cognitive and behavioral deficits that would occur following traumatic brain injury. Um, by reducing that uh, damage to the level of the brain. And it was actually methamphetamine in low doses that was one of the most neuroprotective drugs uh, that we were able to find. So it was an interesting uh, area of study and research. And then that also led me into a, a sort of a lifetime interest in studying the neurobiological basis of <laughs> consciousness uh, at the level of the brain, which on an epiphenomenal level, it's the most profound unanswered question in human history, as I understand it, the fact that we are these conscious, uh, presumably free will endowed 
animals uh, squawking to one another and we're constantly seeking and looking for meaning. Yet when you follow the, the, the neural correlates of consciousness through the brain, there becomes a point when, when the thread evaporates and there's no longer um, an identifiable point in the brain from a neurobiological level where consciousness can be identified as emerging. And that fascinates me uh, deeply. So that sort of interest then carried deeply into the writing of the book and sort of using the book as a complex information system in which readers and writers use text to interact with deeper questions of how we find meaning in complex information systems. Wow, okay. <laughs> so we're here to celebrate the first anniversary of your book. Um, for those people who haven't read it, and we've said a little bit about it, do you want to just give us a bit of the setup of the book? Sure. Yeah. At its simplest, America and the Call to the Cactus Boots <clears throat> is um, a book about writing a book while waiting for a book to arrive in the mail. And at the, the lowest introductory level, uh, there's a character in the book, Philip Friedenberg, who's the author. And then there's the character of the illustrator, Jeff Walton, in the book. And they order a copy of Rick Harsh's The Manifold Destiny of uh, Eddie Vegas. And as they're waiting for the book to arrive, they start to encounter these mysteries while they wait for the book to arrive. And they have a Zenith 7G605 Transoceanic Clipper 1942 Deluxe Portable Suitcase Radio at their work. And they start to receive signals, which are called transmissions from the great beyond, which are messages that start to come through the radio from the author Rick Harsh while they're waiting for Rick Harsh's book to come in the mail. And then that sets out an incredible odyssey that follows a traditional hero's quest plot arc through this large Mandelbrot fractal structure of this great information system around them where the characters decide that they should write a book. And then they're living in a dystopian America at the time that's dominated by a totalitarian leader named American President Ralph, who uh, heads this uh, regime in the United States, this alternate dystopian American reality. Yet at the time that we were writing through, we were writing the book and living through this Trumpian nightmare where there was this evolution of this perceivable shift in America where this dialectic was changing where truth and intellectualism were almost weaponized. Well, uh, it, it felt like the civilization itself was starting to change and crumble. So in the book, there's an organization called the Total Information Control Initiative that's starting a word war in America and literature is outlawed and books are being banned and booksellers are being imprisoned and 
<clears throat> the the written word is being outlawed and then there are these subcultures that are these resistance groups that are beginning to create uh, countercultural movements to preserve the word and to preserve and use literature as a mechanism by which the civilization and the species great ideas are used and passed in these underground networks to essentially argue with no naivete in place at all that books can save civilization in this case. Yet at the same time that the Total Information Control Initiative are uh, performing these word wars, the, they start to discover that Philip Friedenberg and Jeff Walton are starting to work on writing this book that's the centerpiece of a countercultural movement and it is designed to enlighten and connect and unify readers of the world uh, who can, through the book, access a shared consciousness and pass through the text to enter this uh, concept that we call the unified field, which is a transcendent state of universal uh, enlightenment, if you will. Meanwhile, back in the setting, uh, there's also an organization called Neuroform, which mirrors uh, the technology companies that we're all familiar with now that are constantly vying for the battlefield of our attention. <clears throat> and Neuroform creates a device called a ScreenSync 6, and they offer Americans access to this device in exchange for something that they call full consciousness replacement which ultimately is if you forfeit your consciousness for access to this device, which when engaged with uh, in terms of constant entertainment, it sends these repeat uh, dopamine releases in the individual where eventually you have technology kind of zombifying uh, the world, if you will. And most of the people that are not resisting the total information control initiative are being um, essentially taken away from their access to their conscious agency by uh, use of this device. Then Philip and Jeff go on a quest to get the book published in the middle of all these antagonistic forces that are attempting to obstruct them from getting the book to readers. And what the book itself is arguing is that the fundamental uh, creative force that people can use through literature is the idea of creativity. And by creating a new paradigm that thrives on creativity, that the readers of the book become the protagonists because the book begins when it ends, when readers enter the world becoming members of the cult of the cactus boots who sort of weaponize creativity as a um, resistance force against totalitarianism uh, in the world of the book. And then there's, uh, you know, absurd adventures uh, that take place along this path. Wow. Now, Jeff, when you're sitting down with Phil in the office and he pitches this idea to you, were you like, what the fuck are you talking about? Or were you totally on board? Oh, I was absolutely 100% on board. I, I was like, yes, yes. And there'd be, there'd be moments he'd come in and he'd, he'd say, I don't know if I should do this. I, I don't know. It's, it's too risky. I, 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 I'm on the fence of whether I should do this. You know, like 
60 pages of competitive ironing. <laughs> and it's like, yes, absolutely do it. Do it all. Do it. Break all the rules. Do it, please. And in the process, did he uh, just say, look, I've got this competitive ironing uh, part of the book now. And did you just produce images for it? Like, how did that work? Uh I, I knew competitive, competitive ironing was a thing, and I knew uh, that it would be awesome to have a juicy centerfold of various irons that were actually used in the competitions. So I did, I, there was, I believe, six events cataloged in, in the book, and, uh, and I drew all six of the irons that were uh, used in that. Maybe more. I don't know. Does that sound right? Yeah, sounds that sounds right. Like- that sounds about right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I know there was the one scene where it took place on the Mount Washington cog. And, and, uh, and that was the only part of the book that I was actually allowed to have and, and read for my illustration job for this book. That was the only segment I was allowed that I actually had the text. And, uh, and that was the one I, I probably spent, close to 40 50 hours drawing <laughs> just to get all the details done that's a remarkable a remarkable achievement uh and I, I i couldn't have had a better person uh in the world in, in my corner coming up with this because like you said who who how does one respond to these ideas and i would sit down and jeff didn't read the book and Rick did not read the book. And the book was, you know, I approached Rick very early and said, hey, Rick, I just want you to know I'm going to write a book about this. And, you know, I'm going to be a character and Jeff's going to be a character. And it's going to be about waiting for your book to come in the mail. Would you be interested in publishing it? And that was all he knew other than there were these crazed bearded men in Buffalo that were sending him strange and exotic messages about uh, creativity and literature. And he immediately said yes. And for me, you know, Rick and I kind of go back and forth on the inspiring uh, roots of the book. But one of the things that was most powerful powerful for me as, as a creative person trying to become an author was that the moment that I was given license to do what I imagined I felt empowered to be capable of doing anything by someone simply saying, yes, I support whatever you dare to dream. And there's a place for it to end up was one of the most liberating things that I, in my adult creative life. And it has now pushed me to truly try to share an altruistic and inspired message to readers and writers and creatives in the world that listen to this and read this book and know that the best compliment uh, to, to the work American, the cult of the cactus boots, the diagnostic is that you read it and come out of it inspired and empowered to dare to be creative and dream a new type of world that you share with the people that you love. And that's the strongest weapon that we have against uh, the strong dominant forces of oppression that, that are trying to control our attention. They're trying to wrap their, <laughs> their, their, you know, forces of power around our consciousness and our creativity to keep us divided. Um, and the book is really about 
decimating those divisions in our culture and in our politics and in our economics and our class hierarchies and all of these illusory systems that are mechanized to keep us under control. And a lot of the book is about saying the way we undermine these thousands of year old <clears throat> dominant structures and systems is to elevate our evolution through experimentation and practice with creativity in a way that forces <laughs> us to look at the world newly. I'm going to ask you a little bit about Rick Harsh, but first I have a listener question from Seth. He asks, is Rick Harsh a fugitive? Is that why he's living in Slovenia? Jeff, that's I'll, funny. That's, he's a fugitive for looking so damn good. <laughs> I'll give him that. He's he, he, he's a creative fugitive uh, that not even uh, Tommy Lee Jones could track down. <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones himself, as he goes through every outhouse, doghouse, hen house, and uh, you know, uh, haunted uh, sewage duct over the ravine. Rick Harsh too would jump from the peak of that haunted American sewage drain that lets out into the the depths of the unknown. Rick Harsh resides there. And when we built a, an imaginary replica Panama <laughs> Canal inside the topography of the Rick Harsh cortex, know that the time that we spent exploring it, uh, while we were looking to get to the Eleanor Ro Roosevelt moon base, uh, the things that we discovered there, uh, we could never talk about. So on that- True story. Yeah. What was your um, experience you, like working with Rick? It's been nothing but uh, a delight. And, and, you know, I feel like the real band of fugitives are uh, Jeff and myself and Rick. And, you know, throughout the book, those three characters are referred to as the new pyramidal power structure. And um, it's been inspiring and it's been uh, loving and it's been supportive and as I said earlier, the moment that he believed in us and said, well, of course, of course I'm here for this ride was one of the most exciting things I can imagine. <laughs> and, and we've had nothing but, um, uh, you know, a, a supportive, progressive uh, rewriting almost of what publishing can be. What, what is independent literature? What are the capabilities of authors and publishers and readers as a community, are we able to collectively embrace one another to, to create new standards of expectation where we believe so strongly in the power and function of literature that we do take seriously the idea that as we've seen for thousands of years, <clears throat> all the way back to the dawn of philosophy, that books contain the hidden history of the species and it books can really move forward our evolution in a powerful way. And I don't take that lightly, you know, and th there's a deep belief 
that readers that organize around powerful creative ideas can do very powerful and creative things that I feel that power systems are aware of as well. And I feel like there's a war on books that's occurring where there's this seductive, you know, uh, a short attention span theater of technology that is so addicting and so compulsive. And I feel that it's truly changing the behavioral wiring of our entire neuronal architecture in a way that right now, as we are watching it live, the species is changing. And <clears throat> are we going to change in a way that is uh, in the best interest of everyone? Or will we change in a way that's in the best interest of a small, dominant, controlling, hierarchical minority that will profit from us going to sleep? And I think that books enlighten a central and powerful imaginative uh, system within the human being that when it is most active, it is most compelling and I'm interested to see where our evolution continues uh, to head. Which, which way will we go? In the book itself, um, the illustrations, the typesetting, all of those elements, they are unbelievable. Uh, was it difficult to do all of those things in the book? Um, my uh, my experience with typesetting was zero prior to this book, so um, my my choice of program for doing that was Illustrator because I've been working in Adobe Illustrator since I have become a graphic designer. So you know, twenty years I've been doing Illustrator work, and uh, you know, everybody said, "Oh, you got to do you got to do it in in InDesign," and I knew there were a lot of you know, player playing around with typography and, and you know big text text you know moving all around and i knew i i couldn't do it in a program that i wasn't familiar with so i i had to do it in illustrator and that and being able to just do anything in there it it really opened up opened up the book you know for being being able to do anything i wanted and as far as typesetting so that was relatively easy illustrating some of the things maybe not as easy just because of the subject matter but uh i always appreciated a good challenge uh drawing one of my things that i did when i was in college was i had a sketchbook and you know we'd get drunk at a house party or whatever and i i'd pass it to my friends and everybody had to write a sentence at the top of the uh at the top of the page so you pass it around and then now you got a whole paragraph that you have that I would then go on to illustrate and it would get pretty rambunctious you know there were uh explicit acts occurring on polar bears you know go go on and go on but it it, it challenged me to draw things that were absurd so I I guess in some way I did a little bit of training for this book and uh some of the subject matter and um it it sounds like it would be a daunting scary task but it was actually a t a ton of fun and obviously working with phil and knowing phil and, and our relationship it was it was very easy easier than it probably should have been 
You also so, told me before that you had an interesting little restriction put on your page count, hmm. didn't you? Yeah, yeah, that was the two limits that we faced in the book. The first was the far, <laughs> far, far reaches of one's imagination, which for me, the most enlightening thing about the process of writing the book was that every time I blew out a new wall on what I thought was the previous limitation that I faced as a creative and sort of philosophical thinker, as I would regroup and land in the book in this new area, I thought, well, when this wall breaks out, what's awaiting me there? And I thought maybe there would be an end to it. And then there would be these new uh, places to, to learn and discover in the book and new curiosities. And that's what I wanted the book to function in a way that for me, it's a compilation of 20 years of topics that have fascinated me as a thinker. And I thought, if I'm not in love with making discoveries in the exploration of the content of the book, and all that I'm doing is using a traditional hero's quest plot arc to build this architecture of ideas around that I've reached at just to find meaning in and use it as a, a way to source new ideas and become inventive, what would a reader ever want from a book? So I was always conscious of this idea that I would fill the book with all the information that I found valuable in my journey, whether it's from, uh, you know, like it says on the back of the book, if it's from, you know, neuroscience or psychedelics or physics or absurdism, technology, poetry, um, cosmology, totalitarianism, all of these ideas would play roles in the book to help us say, well, maybe there's information in all of these disciplines that would allow an individual to find, uh, you know, real core uh, artillery to be used against those hard existential questions that people face every day of, you know, what, what, what's my purpose? What's my function in the world? What, what's my, what is all of this information available to me for and what's its function? And I wanted to design the book in a way that it, you know, it, it's, a, it's a complex information system and we're constantly bombarded with every piece of knowledge. Like to me, the maximalist novel is more important now than it ever was before because we have access to everything that's ever been thought of at a fingertip. We have supercomputers in our pockets, you know, and, and, and how do we use that uh, to not just be crushing entropy? And I felt that I was facing this a lot as I was able to learn more and kind of apply all these um, histories and traditions of art and, and academics and metaphysics and, sports and you know these things and put it into this one um set of ideas that asked someone how do we practice sorting through complex information systems and come up on the other side where we take out of that process new developments new discoveries new applications to uh, long-standing problems and not just be overwhelmed by the uh allure of entropy to fracture 
our ability to process information at this high of a level. I just want to, on a side note, I want to talk about Jeff's illustration really quickly. The one thing that Jeff did so beautifully is that he was able to create these illustrations just through conversation. He and I would sit down and I would come into work and I would tell him very vividly these things that, uh, that were going on. And well, and one of my favorite of Jeff's illustrations from the book, and I'll just read from page six, it says, upon entry into the book, the assigned antenna agents are to report to Operation Bovine Mind Dome Operative 11 for literary text stream, text analysis assignment location protocol. And what's happening in the book is that there's antenna agents that are working for the Total Information Control Initiative, and they are alerted to the danger that Jeff and Philip and Rick Harsh pose to their agenda because they're making this creative work called America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots. And they're assigned to start to perform something called thought frequency surveillance, which they have created a project called Project Cloudhouse, which is loosely based off HARP, where they've ionized cloud structures. And they're able to put the entire contents of the human consciousness thought structures into clouds. And then they can take those thoughts and then they put them into bovine brains in these massive underground facilities below an airport in the Midwest where antenna agents use a device to connect to bovine brains to perform uh, analysis of people's thoughts to find and identify any thoughts that people are having that are divergent from the total information control initiatives objective. And then antenna agents are sent out to find and, and destroy those creative threats to uh, country and nation. And I remember talking to Jeff saying, all right, Jeff, there's this underground facility where there's antenna agents that are connected into long concrete underground facilities that are the size of football fields. And they have these cows that have uh, devices on their head and antenna agents connect to their brains and, and try to analyze all of the thought structures. Do you think you could draw something like that? And if you're familiar with it in the book, that illustration, Jeff comes back in like three or four days with this just brilliant, perfect image of this absolutely absurd creative idea to the point where you think two human beings aren't supposed to be able to communicate <laughs> to this degree where he's so perfectly able to visualize these ideas. And that's one of my favorite illustrations in the book as well as the uh, neuroform replacement grandmas. <laughs> <laughs> All right, can I ask you, uh, what are you working on as a follow-up? Uh, well, I'm happy, Ben, because it's you and you're, uh, I have huge respect for you. And again, it's a ton of a pleasure for me and Jeff to, to be with you on the show. And I've listened to so many of your shows. It's such a treat to be here, but uh, it's a good place to just say for the first time as we've um, kind of flirted with talking about what we would do next. And I really tried 
to not think about anything um, about what would be next. Because for me, one of the main uh, propulsive forces of writing Cactus Boots and one of my tips unsolicited to authors out there, if you're interested in receiving unsolicited advice, one of the things that I think is most helpful for writing is thinking about what you're going to write and obsessively exploring the potential of what the ideas are, what is the function of an idea, What's the function of a story structure? What's the function of uh, characters in that structure? How do these pieces interact and connect? And if you hit a point where you can't stop thinking about them and the ideas will not leave you alone and they will not let you rest and those ideas don't already exist in the form of a story or art already, it then becomes the artist's obligation to create that art and put it into the world unapologetically in the vision that you hold. And I am not able to escape the vision of what this book is. So as hard as I've tried to escape it myself, we're going to do another one <clears throat> and the, we're, it, it'll be another book in the Cactiverse, if you will, and I feel like Jeff and I are just starting with this book, which might sound like a surprise for you know a 600-page maximalist book like this, but I really didn't ever want to end the book. So we're going to write a next book, <clears throat> and Jeff will illustrate it, and the book is going to be called The Museum of General Ideas. And in America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots, there is reference made to the author Philip Friedenberg 20 years prior working on a novel called The Museum of General Ideas. And that novel and the journey of the Philip and Jeff characters through this world will continue in this metafictional cactiverse that we're creating. And, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do as a metafictional utility in America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots was write a novel where the setting of the novel actually takes place within the novel that's in your hands. So <clears throat> I'm still fascinated with this idea of the characters <clears throat> living inside this text and living inside the book and the readers of books becoming protagonists of the story. <clears throat> and that author reader relationship <clears throat> has fascinated me. So um, yeah, I think once we finish the one year anniversary gold cover edition of the book, which will come out on the one year anniversary of um, the release of this book. And once we finish the David Lee Miller book, uh, Philosophy of Creativity, Activity, <clears throat> we will move into another uh, phase of uh, book two. That sounds so exciting. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, th thank you. It's and, and I, I've had so many deeply inspiring, meaningful connections with readers that I've been able to talk to over the past year who the, uh, this book has, people have had very meaningful 
personal profound experiences with the book and I've really sort of fallen in love with the selfless hope that you can create a book or a piece of art whose greater service is not the indulgence of one's own intellect or imagination, but it is the service of sharing that potential with other people who will find something in it that they too can uh, define as meaningful. And if more people surround themselves uh, with this book and people that enjoy the book, the power and potential of enlightened creative people connecting and talking like we are and having conversations about big ideas um, to me feels like a paradigm shift. And it feels like a, an, an elevated uh, pursuit of new possible place where consciousness uh, expands and when consciousness expands worlds change and I have a belief that we're capable of doing that. You want to briefly tell us about the David Miller project? Jeff you want to talk a little bit about that? <clears throat> uh, yeah when we uh, we were doing cactus boots and we were receiving the actual transmissions from Rick Harsh there was a moment where he, he told us, oh, I don't know what David Miller is going to say about that. And we, we pried and we found out that that was uh, uh, one of Rick's friends or was, was he an actual professor of Rick's? Or Yeah, at, at the University of La Crosse, uh, Wisconsin, uh, Miller was a professor there that Rick uh, created a sort of mentorship with. Yeah, so... I got the name we, you know, and then people who've read Cactus Bus know that Miller is a character in the book. And we actually reached out to David Miller and we, we, uh, we developed some sort of relationship with him, maybe not as strong as, uh, as Rick's, but, uh, and, and eventually one thing led to another and, and, we're going to re-release a book that he published in uh, 1988 called The Philosophy of Creativity. And it's an exciting project. And my role in it is there's, um, I think, uh, over almost 200 promptings that Miller has. And I'm doing an illustration for the first 41 of them. Uh, so there's going to be 41 illustrations in the re-release um, of the book. And I actually have not read the book, but Phil, you own a copy of it. Yeah. If you want to elaborate on the content of the book. Yeah. The Miller has created one of the keystone works of um, philosophical writing on the function of creativity that I think is a missing link in a longer lineage of Western philosophy whose place uh, should be re-explored. And it's such a privilege to be able to bring this book to new readers and to be in a position to share this work. And it's been utterly profound to have been in a position where uh, we were working on the book. And then Rick mentioned to me one day, uh, you know, hey, there's this uh, professor that was, you know, important to me and his name was David Lee Miller and he had this book. And then within days, I had found a copy of that book and started reading it. And to me, I thought, well, this this is 
overtly meaningful and I have to include it in the journey of the book. And then we didn't, you know, I didn't know David Lee Miller. I, I had no connection with him. Uh, and he was just this critical piece of the book. And I thought, well, what a, what an idea. You have these dystopian trappings in a work of fiction and you have these uh, totalitarian governing forces that are limiting people. How, how do we not use dystopia simply as a mechanism that we talk about our dissatisfaction with a social structure? And I didn't want to use dystopian um, tropes to just use to allow the characters to pivot into problem solving situations. I instead wanted to explore the idea of real practical pragmatic solutions of, well, what can we do in the face of dystopia, not as a trope, but as a way that we can discuss real um, outcomes, real effect and impact on the world where philosophy is not just uh, theory and, and, and philosophy functions only in the practice of the higher uh, levels of academia, but we dethrone intellectualism and we dethrone philosophy and we use it to rearm an educated population to say, aha, I can use creativity, I can use literature as a mechanism of change. Then we finished the book and we got a copy to David Lee Miller and it was just sort of this, this moment of, oh my gosh, like the real David Lee Miller who's in his 80s now and he lives in Wisconsin and in the book, the Philip and Jeff character have to travel through these underground word tunnels to escape the word wars. And it's this theoretical concept of this underground labyrinth where the entire written history of the world is existing in the, the pages of all of uh, you know, humankind's literature. And we move through these books and then we find a pathway to get to this vanished Wisconsin where we find David Lee Miller. And he is sort of this access point that enlightens the characters to what the next step of their adventure would be. Then in real life, I start communicating with David Lee Miller and I'll just share this briefly because this is one of the most powerful moments for me after the book came out. David Lee Miller, who wrote Philosophy of Creativity, who's a character in the book, wrote about America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots. <clears throat> and he said, reading America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots, a diagnostic, is the same as watching torrents of water spill over and down at Niagara Falls. Except I'm watching words, not water. But author Philip Friedenberg lets us know early on that words are water and water is words. He's teaching us about the breathtaking palpability of the dynamically expressive unified field. Philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein would approve as he teaches that once the ascension ladder is used, it's best to throw it away. America in the Cult of the Cactus Boots, a diagnostic is a trailblazing and tantalizing book. David Lee Miller, author of Philosophy of Creativity. And that moment for me, when there was this transition of this fictional person in my head, transforming into this real powerful human being is a lot of what the book is trying to do. It's trying to say that in the, in the book, 
we become fictional characters existing in a text because we become theoretical agents of exploring experimental ideas. But the outcome of the discovery of all of that learning going through the process of philosophy and metaphysics and physics and cosmology and spirituality, we come out the other side becoming real human beings. We pass from human being to text to human being, and then we begin to change the world. And it's that idea of person, uh, word, unified field. And we're just exploring the idea of the possibility of, you know, expanding our consciousness, elevating into a, a new ascended um, area of human experience where we explore the power of our connectivity. All right. Are you ready to move on to your gateway books and experiences? Certainly. All right. Jeff, do you want to go first? <laughs> um. You know, as an illustrator, it, it, I spend a lot of my time uh, drawing, but um, I guess I would just say that a lot of what in my gateway books were a lot of comic books and a lot of um, collections of those comics, you know, Calvin and Hobbes, the Ninja Turtles, even, you know, um, get my hands on these comics as a kid. And I would just, it was almost as if the the narrative wasn't as important as the artwork when I would look at it. And I would just study all the, all, every mark on the page. I, I just have a lot of memories of doing that. Um, the Shel Silverstein books, you know, I, I know I've, I talk a lot about that, but that was, those were huge for me. Every year I give a new Shel Silverstein book to my nieces and I, I do my own poem with, a, with an illustration inside of it to personalize it for them. And, and I just remember those books had a great influence on me when I was a kid. And, um, you know, it's, I'm an illustrator, so all of my gateways come from other illustrators. Hmm. What about you, Phil? Um, my... Reading history is long and I think incredibly valuable to becoming an author. And I truly feel that anyone that's setting out to, to write and find their voice and explore uh, story and narrative, uh, the first thing is to read everything you can find. And I think that's <clears throat> the passion for books is really what I tried to build into uh, Cactus Boots. And I tried to put thread after thread after thread of possible points of entry into deeper exploration for readers to find pathways into new areas of interest that might help uh, make discovery because that's what books have always been for me. And that's one of the deep loves that I have with reading and, and the exploratory journey throughout my life has been uh, a general curious voraciousness in that I always feel that through books, I'm one step away from a new discovery that can transform not only the way that I understand myself, but the way that I understand my connection to others, the way that I can understand my connection to the world and the effect that I can have 
in that integrated uh, complex uh, system of symmetries, if you will. And um, just some, some books for me um, lately, a very important note. Uh, and, and what I always try to do too, is when I, when I get excited about a book, I want to share it because I, I want other people to, to feel that. And when, when I see people get excited about books, I want to read it. And if I hear something from you and you say, Hey, I think you should read this. I'll read everything, you know, and that's what I've done for a long time. And one thing that I should say, which is likely evident in a reading of Cactus Boots is that I have a really dense, strong curiosity with nonfiction. And, you know, uh, a lot of my thinking is informed by, um, philosophy and neuroscience, psychology, history, physics, cosmology, those things, um, consciousness studies. I spent about five years reading nothing but all of the consciousness literature, all, all the way from the hard problem, uh, you know, David Chalmers and, and Francis Crick and looking at the hard problem of, you know, uh, binding and the biological basis of consciousness, then transforming and going through the limitations of biology where those systems collapse in providing more understanding and then getting into some of the more <clears throat> metaphysical and occult and alchemical looks, you know, of consciousness. Um, Amit Goswami's The Conscious Universe was an important book for me uh, in that transition from hard biology to the metaphysics of consciousness. So I have an almost untouched nonfiction world that doesn't come up a lot because a lot of fiction writers usually tend to equate you know, fiction comes from fiction, comes from fiction. But I really liked <clears throat> kind of deconstructing and experimenting with those lines in America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots by even bringing in real um, characters and real pieces of history to use them to tie in their links to fiction. So nonfiction and fiction start to emerge. Like, you know, when, when I look at the roots and the origins of uh oppression in totalitarianism in America. We reference the Pequot massacre in the book, which is a devastating, true historical point in time, you know, where there was a, a paradigm shift from, um, you know, an open social system to dominant controlling roots of organization and kind of playing with real history and then fiction and merging them. But in terms of fiction, <clears throat> um, I, I always love when you ask authors what their books are, because I have I think I've read through many of the lists that I've heard that you've interviewed authors and, you know, see their books. But for me, the, the most important book for me, other than The Manifold Destiny of Eddie Vegas by Rick Harsh, that has been transformative for me, has unquestionably been uh, Louis Armand's The Combinations. Uh, since I finished writing America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots, that's been the next book for me because I kind of went through a sort of grim uh, 
connection to fiction after writing a book because it was such an immersive experience of living in that world and pushing out every wall that I could think of that was facing me in, in, in novel writing and how, what could I do in a humble yet inspired way to say the novel is not dead, but the novel is the brink of a new transformative art in the West, if you will, and we won't let the novel die. When I read Armand's The Combinations, I had that wall pushed another thousand yards out when thinking about what what the novel can do. And really my books here are all in some way or another books that at some point in my life I read that expanded the playing field of what the function of the novel could be or what I thought it could be. So some important ones, uh, notably starting most recently with Louis Armand's The Combinations, other big ones. At a young age, William Burroughs' Naked Lunch, which I remember my brother Jerry had and um, I got into that book and I, I got into William Burroughs at a point where I went, oh my, fiction you can do incredible things with it. And what William Burroughs has done in that territory has been transformative to literature, I think for, you know, a hundred years. So William Burroughs' Naked Lunch was massive for me. Um, Melville's Moby Dick, uh, David Foster Wallace, Infinite Jest, um, Animal Money by Michael Sisko was a book that I read that I simply fell in love with because the way that it handled uh, the world of a book, it just appealed to me on every single level where you bring in a scope to your literature that starts at the dawn of time and it goes to the end of time. Uh, another massive important book in my development was uh, Umberto Eco's Full Cots Pendulum that book, uh, you know, the sort of mystery and occult curiosity, um, the idea of information and, you know, obscured, hidden information has always been important to me. How do dominant systems uh, occupy a hold on important sacred knowledge? And what happens if uh, we start to uh, reclaim occult alchemical sacred knowledge? how does that empower a civilization to institute uh, transformative social structural change? And that's a lot of things I brought into Cactus Boots to play with this idea to say that we might be on the brink of connecting with sacred knowledge that exists, that if we could just pull the curtain back and understand some of the deeper, true authentic roots that have informed human history and nature, how could we reorganize our social systems in a way to possibly come up with new imagined possible worlds that are more inclusive and they're not just destructive and divisive. Um, and then of course, another one, uh, Gravity's Rainbow by Pynchon is, was a life-changing book for me. And, uh, you know, I think many readers that like this type of book, you know, the maximalist novel, if you will, uh, can relate to what that book is in terms of a, a deep investigation uh, of the me mechanics of power structures and their effect on not only human social organization, but um, the 
organization of uh, human thinking as well and how complex systems um, interact with that. So th that's just a, a list of, of books. I'm sure there's not a ton of surprises there, but those, those have been important ones to me. Um, another important one that I don't necessarily put on a, a top 10, if you will, but a transformative book for me was um, A Wrinkle in Time, which is the original point in my life that I can directly reflect on learning that books could blow my head open as a fourth grader reading A Wrinkle in Time um, it was a powerful experience for me. And I've said it before, but uh, the inclusion of the Tesseract in uh, Cactus Boots was a sort of direct creative philosophical homage to um, that book and the, the impact that it had on me. Um, I also have a really deep film background uh, and I, I always tried to think of Cactus Boots um, as a, a you know a cinematic experience as well i didn't want the book to become overly theoretical in any way that it lost its connection to structured scenes in a uh you know well-structured arc but um yeah those are some important ones for me All right jeff do you have any um books that you're currently reading or you're looking forward to um, once I wrap up with the Miller project, I should have some time, but, uh, I, I'm not gonna lie. I, I, ever since I got in or in involved with Corona Samastat, which is the, the, the publisher, I, I've supported the press and, and purchased, uh, many books from, from them and, and, uh, they're, they're on standby. You know, I got the, uh, the Oscar submerges, I got the wandering stone the streets of old azola i've got a manifold i got i i, I have a, a backlog but uh, a lot of my time like i said is spent uh with with pen to paper <laughs> yeah i i really am excited for people to get their hands on philosophy of creativity because it is absolutely jeff's <clears throat> uh untouched masterpiece the illustrations in this book the artwork is so inspiring and i i feel uh privileged to to have seen all this uh, stuff already as we're putting the book together you know to be done within two weeks here now 10 days or so until it comes out but there's really a breathtaking and inspiring collection of of work here that uh you know jeff it's 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 inspiring you know uh it's beautiful stuff and i can't wait for um uh, you know one of the ideas with creativity for us was just this thought of okay if we're saying you know creativity is this powerful untapped source of potential in our lives and at this critical point in our history well what do we do then i would argue that the cult of the cactus boots and philosophy of creativity for example are practical exercises in the application of creativity to the world around us. And if I think more and more people just adopt, even if your early experiments with creativity are cantankerous in their manifestations, it's okay. 
play with new ideas, explore new combinatory play. You know, a lot of the word fever sections of America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots were a direct linguistic experiment with new combinatory play, which Einstein talked about for coming up with uh, uh, new problem solving techniques. If you put together unlike ideas or concepts that have never been combined before, one may then be able to access new problem solving sets because you've transcended the limitations of the problem that you're trying to solve. And if we try to simply solve our problems from within the construct of that pre-existing problem, <clears throat> we're probably unlikely to come up with new imagined outcome sets transcended to those limitations. So we're really just asking people to read the book and experiment with creativity, experiment with new ideas. If you're thinking of writing a book, write a book. You're able to um, become inspired, change and transform the way you interact with yourself and your world and, and, and play with big ideas because they're uh, intoxicating to experiment with. And that's why I'm excited for the next the next book, because the intoxicating experiments of this book have been really um, a beautiful experience. So what books are you currently reading at the moment or looking forward to? Uh, at the moment, I have probably a stack of 50 books uh, that's uh, daunting. And I sit next to it in one of these days, you might read a newspaper article out of Buffalo, New York about the author that had his pile of to be read books that fell and collapsed on him. And then he turned <laughs> to a satchel of bones underneath it. Uh, if you want to have a grave site for me one day, it'll just be a skeleton under a pile of collapsed books, you know, I'll probably be quite full of bliss, though, at that point. So don't let that story surprise you if you ever hear it. Um, uh, what I'm reading now is I'm, I'm reading every uh, Louis Armand book, because uh, that's what I'll do is go through and, uh, and, and read everything that some, somebody wrote. So I'm, I'm working on Cairo right now. Um, the other important thing that I'm trying to do is I am really genuinely trying uh, to celebrate some, you know, reciprocal altruism because I have been so humbled and grateful to have so many people help and care for us in the journey of spreading this book. And there's so many incredible people that have written wonderful reviews and talked about our book and shared our book. And I am trying as hard as I can to find books in our community that independent authors are writing. And I'm trying to read them and share them and write reviews for them to, to try to give back to the community that's given so much to us. And that's really important to me. So I kind of oscillate in my, my reading cycle to read two or three books and then I will find a book from the community, uh, you know, Instagram, YouTube, uh, authors that, that I find. And uh, I'm trying to write reviews more to, to help share and bring attention to uh, other independent authors. So that's been very important to me. So I've got quite a few books on deck that I've uh, found from the community that I intend to write to review for. Um, and I've found some really incredible books. Um, 
there's a book called Sunflower by an author named Tex Gresham that was just a just a incredible book that blew me away. And that's an example of a book that I found through the community, wrote a review on, and I try to anybody that will listen, hey, what's a, what's a new book that I should read? I'm always quick to reference uh, his book. Um, so there's so many authors uh, out there. Same, same with the community. Jeff mentioned Zach's book, Oscar Submerges. Zach uh, is an incredibly powerful force for the press. He, he's deeply involved in bringing the Broussard books back. Um, he typesets and does covers for almost all the books. Um, he was kind enough to ask me to write an introduction to his book, which I was able to do. Um, so that was important to me. So really, you know, I'm trying to focus as much energy as I can. I've, led, I, I, I've read a, a countless number of unpublished manuscripts that people have reached out to me and said, Hey, it, you know, it would be important to me if you could read this. Um, and I've provided feedback and tried to write reviews in advance of publication and releases to try to help um, cultivate attention to independent authors that have vision and passion for books. So that's a new sort of uh, position that I found myself in as a result of the publication of my own novel. I've connected to all of these incredible other authors who I love trying to spread the word on. There's so many people like yourself, Ben, that um, have uh, podcasts, uh, you know, booktube channels, Instagram pages, um, being surrounded by books everywhere I look is uh, a nice way to really explore something that I love. Tell them, Jeff, about the beer recipe because there's a beer, the beer recipe, recipe is cool. Yeah. In the book. And we mm. have had some readers brew the beer from the recipe in the book. Not with the human <laughs> genome part, though, right? What's that? Well, but not including yeah, the human yeah. genome. The part. human genome <laughs> part that you have to contact us directly we'll ship that to you yeah yeah if, if you pull that out and you make the recipe uh as as uh, stated in the book it yields a very uh delicious result and um i, t I remember i took a five gallon keg of that to a to a party one time and there were um six people that drank on it and it was gone by the end of the night wow so it must do it must work but um you know, it's, I mean, talk about top 10 inspirations. We can talk yeah. just, yeah, if you've got any experiences you want to, yeah, that you think would be Well, important. you know, it's uh, obviously, I, I mentioned Shel Silverstein. I mentioned, uh, you know, your your standard comic books. And um, I mean, outside of that, you get into the surrealist stuff, Salvador Dali, you get, uh, <clears throat> you know, even Picasso, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm all over the place. Uh, if anybody is on my Instagram and you thumb through any of the thousand uh, posts I've made, you see my, my style varies outside of what's uh, portrayed in the book. I've got a lot of different styles that I, that I do. I have a whole separate project called loops and doodles and that's a, that's a whole different vibe. Um, and I find that my biggest inspiration right now is actually coming from Instagram. And there's people I follow on Instagram that 
you know, they're not well known, but they inspire me. And, and, and that's, it's kind of like we all inspire each other and it's, it's almost, you know, synchronous to the whole book, bookstagram thing, the, the authors getting together. Well, there's the whole, you know, I wouldn't call it starving artists, but unknown artists on Instagram that, that deserve credit out there. And, uh, and they inspire me just as maybe I inspire them. And it's, it's, um, I was late to the Instagram game. I didn't, you know, a lot of people, Oh, you need an Instagram. Oh, you need a TikTok. And it's like, I'm just a guy that's busy all the time. And it's, you know, yeah, whatever. And then I, I got an Instagram and I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed that I didn't get in earlier, but uh, <laughs> there's, there's so many, and they're all really cool people. They, they interact and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's inspirational just to flip through my feed and see what other artists are doing out there. An important note here, kind of going with what Jeff's saying, definitely one of my top 10 inspirations is Jeff and (laughs) not many people other than maybe Jeff's wife, Erica and my wife, Heather really understand the degree of unrelenting absurdism and humor that rolls out of our every day. And I almost feel that if you surround yourself with people um, of such character that we almost are creating an alternate reality and then living neatly within it, that's almost utopian in some regards that, that serves as an alternative parallel creative universe where you can get away with um, anything. And it's almost, uh, you know, w- this unified field idea, you know, uh, where all the collective conscious ideas are. I feel like we just try to flirt with tearing that ceiling down every day and turning the mundane into the sublime. And that's a beautiful idea, you know, like taking you know, Alfred Jari and his idea of pataphysics was important to me. You know, he's sort of this artist that mixed science and art to say, well, I'll make up a fake science called pataphysics, which is the idea of imaginary solutions, where you can superimpose imaginary ideas over real ideas and blur um, the, the influence of those worlds. And a lot of what we play with in the book is that very concept of saying, well, if you think about it on a practical level, all of our human innovations began as someone's crazy idea. And there is this gulf between the applicable adaptive potential of an idea in its infancy versus an idea in the fully realized practice of its application and execution in the world where ideas transform from this abstract theoretical and metaphysical content to real tangible material things and for us this book is a lot of that imaginative firepower being practiced of saying let's really dare to take the uh, ethereal metaphysical content of our imagination and experiment with just how far we can go with uh, turning it into a practical application to imagine new possible worlds. And it's just fun, uh, you know, to, to think about these ideas and what can we manifest and 
what can we get away with in terms of uh, trying to play around with an experimental perceptive look at the world? Because I think the world's the material, the, the materialist, the dominant materialist view of the world uh, from practical application all the way down to the quantum mechanical level, shit starts to fall apart in its dominance at a sort of subatomic level. And I think we have less of a strong grasp on how much we believe we control uh, the world. And I think we're a lot more capable of, of coming up with uh, new breathtaking advances in how we look at the world and what better way to experiment with those ideas than write books. Well, we should probably wrap it up, but before That's we do, do you want to tell us where we can get your amazing book, America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots, especially in the gold edition? Yeah. Jeff? Well, uh, the gold edition, as far as I know, there's about 30 of them left of the hundred. And those come with uh, their own unique supply of ephemera uh, inserts, stickers, uh, and the, it, it and there's the one overlay which is printed on a plastic, which will be signed by Phil, myself, and Rick, the publisher, and uh, that's through CoronaSamas dot punching into a. Uh, a search browser and you're all set and and goes from there. And can you tell us where we can catch up with you online? Um, there we're very active on Instagram, uh, cult of the cactus boots. <clears throat> so reach out, say hello, uh, share your ideas, talk about books, send us your book, uh, you know, communicate and connect. And uh, very important, Ben, thank you to everything that you do. Your show is endlessly enriching and incredible. And I'm very happy to let you know that I'm a huge fan of yours. So it's, it's a it's super uh, exciting honor to get on here and have a conversation with you. And there's a ton of hard work that goes into putting uh, podcasts like this together. And you do it because you love it and you love books and giving people like Jeff and I, uh, you know, a resource and a platform to talk about this and share ideas with you and others is really deeply meaningful to us. Well, pleasure speaking to you both and congratulations on the anniversary of this great book. Thank you so much. All right. Thank thanks. you very much. Thank you for having us. Thanks once again to Jeff Walton and Philip Friedenberg. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with you next episode very soon. Bye.